is about punk music and, and punk is about uh, recontextualizing the music of, of their youth from the 50s and early 60s, but playing it fast and loud. Whereas Pitch Perfect is about taking all of this music around and, and recontextualizing it in a different way, which is in these kind of mashups where everything is, is smashed together. And, you know, there's, there's something... I think it says something about the differences in the generations and their their relation to the music of the past and about themselves as a group. Yeah, I can see that, but I mean it's I you know, but then it it just turns into a bland kind of porridge when you just kind of mix it all together and you've got this kind of junky stuff to it. Well, you could say the same about about the, their mashups. <laughs> Is about this whole generation. Is it, it's, it's well, that's what it's I'm whole, saying. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then, and then, like the blandness of the mashups becomes kind of a meta commentary on the generation that that the film is, you know, depicting. And see, and and this is where I get at you again because I, I don't think that the see, I don't think that the movie's saying something like that. I can see what you're saying, um, but. I, I don't think this movie ha- is some sort of meta commentary on 18 year olds of today. Like, I think this movie is, uh, you know, you, you talk about how. Well, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think it's like intentional. Like, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, the, the writer and director are out there to make this, you know, film critiquing, you know, whatever generation this is. But I think it's, it's kind of latent in the, in the material and it just can't help but come out. So I guess we should start talking about, you know, the movies we're talking about this week. Uh, is it that time already? Yeah, it's been two weeks. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know if I've got anything to say about these ones, but we could talk about Pitch Perfect some more. But hey, what the hell, let's cue up the theme song. Happy Labor Day, everybody. Uh, welcome to the George Sanders Show. Uh, Sean and I would like to wish you a happy holiday. Um, and tying in with that holiday, we're going to be discussing two films today. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 film Strike, uh, his debut feature film, and Meituan from director John Sayles. Um, we'll also be picking our Cinema Essential work movies and talking about Werner Herzog, who has a birthday uh, this week. Uh, we'll also get to some what Sean been watching and dive into a little bit of news as well. So we've got a jam-packed episode. Um, how are you doing, Sean? I'm okay. You're doing all right? Yeah. I mean, I, the Labor Day is not really much of a holiday for me. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, technically labor. Right. Although every day is a trial. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put that on your tombstone. <laughs> um, well, like I said, we've got a lot to get to. So we're going to uh, talk about Strike first. Um, but it is uh, a silent film, as you know, 1925 uh, goes to show you. So uh, instead of that, we're going to hear um, something. What are we going to hear, Sean? The International. Debout les forces de la fin, 
So we, we've talked about a few silent films on the show before. We talked about uh, uh, Victor Seastrom's Ingeborg Holm, and we talked about Marcel Herbier's L'Argent. But we haven't, I don't think we've really given enough attention to silent film. I don't know that we really can, but, you know, we're, we're doing our best. And this is our first uh, uh, Russian silent, Soviet silent film uh, from the most acclaimed uh, product of that film movement, uh, Sergei Eisenstein. And it'll uh, give us a chance to talk about montage for the first time. Are you are you excited? I am. And actually, as an aside to that, um, I would be totally fine if we just talked about silent movies every week. I, re- I like if you want to you know, take that challenge on, that would be great. I don't think necessarily our listeners would like that, but um, that sounds right <laughs> up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a podcast about silent movies sounds just great. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about talking about this and um I think there's a lot to unpack here. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. All right. So this is, this is Eisenstein, like you said, this is Eisenstein's first feature. It, uh, it came out in early 1925. And then later that same year, uh, he released Battleship Potemkin, which is of course his most famous film. Um, but strike is surprisingly enough about a strike and it is, uh, uh, yeah, it starts with workers in a factory they're unhappy, they go out on strike, then they're happy for a while, and then they're miserable, and then their bosses uh, send people out to kill them. And then the movie ends. Can you can you believe it's Russian with a plot like that? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's it's very basic in, in the matter of plot, and one of the uh, the interesting things about it is, is, is it doesn't have individual hero-type characters in the way that that we come to expect with Hollywood film, and and even uh, by 1925, it's it's been well established certain narrative conventions in in international cinema, and and Strike very much goes in the face of that. Uh, and you know, Eisenstein wrote about this as as something that he specifically set out to do in making the film is to have a a collective hero where it's it's the workers as a whole who you are supposed to root for and identify with rather than finding a particular individual to latch onto. I think that's a really interesting way of making a movie and we, we still see it at times. And it's, it's kind of weird how the collective hero has, has, you know, changed as it's gone on through, through cinema history. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, of world war two films, which make a lot of use of, uh, of collective heroes. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, but even even by that point, you know, even in those movies, um, there's still like more personality, you know, distinguishable personalities on display, and you know, the the most distinguishable personality in this of of the workers is the guy that kills himself. <laughs> yeah. um, so very, it, very, very early in the film. Very early in the film. It actually is the catalyst for all of the events that, that take place after that. Um, yeah, is, you'll, you'll see in, in, in uh, like a World War II movie like The Longest Day, you'll see a, a collective hero where it's not any one individual story, but all of the individuals are played by recognizable actors. Right. Yeah, and I guess that plays into it, obviously, because um, I don't know any. You know, I I don't know any of the people in Strike, and you know, I think I think most of them are, were like Russian theater actors. I don't I don't know even like by the standards of Soviet cinema that any of them were actual movie stars. Like like Eisenstein himself had come from from theater, right? And it says that in the opening, it says that they're all from the same. Or I, I don't think it says everybody, but you know, with gracious help from I forget the name of the theater troupe or whatever. So yeah, right. exactly. Um, they're not. They weren't movie stars, and they didn't go on to be movie stars, um, so to speak. So, yeah, which uh, is, which is something that you know this these these early films from Eisenstein are very um, are very ideological and very you know very pro revolution and and you know basically propaganda for the Russian Revolution. Uh, as he went on in his career, he kind of moved past that to where like his last three films, the. Uh, the Ivan the Terrible films and and Alexander Nevsky have a a famous movie star playing the lead role, and you know they follow, you know, a more traditional plot structure. So it's it's actually these early films that are are much more radical, at least in in this sense, than than Eisenstein's later work. And there's a lot of differences with his films from the late 30s and 40s and these 1920 films as well, but. I don't. I don't think you've seen any of those those later films, right? I haven't. I mean, we mentioned this uh, on our uh, Solaris episode. Uh, you know, Russian cinema um, across the board is is a huge blind spot for me. Like that was the first Tarkovsky I'd seen, mm. um, and I've and in terms of Eisenstein, I I haven't seen Battleship Potemkin. I'm a horrible really? person. Um, no, I've never seen it. Um, we we so, played it. It was a Metro classic. I wasn't there that week. It was um, one of one of like the the top five least attended Metro Classics ever. <laughs> hey, the, hey, the 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 clear winner of that award is still Pennies from Heaven, which was the That's movie true. that I pushed for. So <laughs> don't go talking to me about obscure <laughs> movies that no one wants to see. Um, no, I mean it, the thing is, is, you know, it's one of those you know films that you, or, or you know his whole work is you know one of those things you always you know plan on checking off and you know life gets in the way um but i'd like to say based on this i mean i really responded to this um on on just i mean obviously a technical level um this thing especially in the first you know, 10 minutes, it's a tour de force. Like I, the intro, the movies for me, and I think we'll get into this in a bit is, um, it kind of tapers off a little bit. Um, because well, the it's beginning just, is, it's just not possible to maintain that energy. I know for a whole feature length. I know, but I mean, but it still is, it brings you down, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. So the beginning, if we can talk about, it, it's just the first like three minutes of this thing or whatever sure. is very abstract um, he does a lot of really interesting experimental things. Um, you know, there's, he runs, there's a shot of, um, 
workers it shoots him he shoots them from the reflection of a puddle and he shoots it backwards so um the puddle gets stepped in and it you know the whole the picture dissipates or whatever but it's running backwards um is crazy <laughs> and then there's a there's a title card um that's in russian that morphs into um i forget what it said it was like h o or something yeah it's uh it's it's uh if the translation is right, it's like the word "but" in in Russian, like right. the, the uh, is that a conjunction? You're a conjunction. You're a conjunction. <laughs> uh, it's 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 the word "but," which is, is apparently uh, "ho" or or "o" or something, and like the "o" kind of like you know animates around and 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 like encircles somebody, right? Yeah. Um, which is really cool. Um, yeah. And the, the circles is like a recurring motif throughout the film. There's, there's circles everywhere, constantly surrounding the workers are these circles. And it's like a, you know, it's a, it's like a, a big, you know, uppercase symbol of like, you know, the circular nature of, of capitalist exploitation of, of the masses and the need to, to strike and revolt to, to break the circle, you know, yeah. Which, yay. Uh, yay. Uh, well, you know what's funny is um, I I tend to, you know, bristle and and approach very skeptically things that I feel like are trying to force feed me, you know, ideology. Um, and but it's so funny because the 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 people that manage to get me into it are usually the Russians. <laughs> like, uh, for example, like I am Cuba. Yeah. Uh, I, I fucking love that movie. Yeah, it's, you know? another, it's another, you know, wildly experimental propaganda film. Right. And it's and, like, and it, it's, it's like the, 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 the craziness of the, the film style makes the, uh, the kind of tendentiousness of the political arguments more palatable. Yeah. And it does. And, and these movies and, you know, for this one, obviously it's, it's silent. It doesn't have this, you know, um, long speechifying or something about, you know, the, the collective or whatever. It, it just shows you, um, you know, it does get a little heavy handed here. Um, I could have really done without the uh, animal Im imagery, um, particularly the cow that is slaughtered at the end of this movie, which, which is, is, is it's, it's one of the most revolutionary aspects of the film that, that use of, of montage. It's like, it's like the textbook example and, yeah, it's it's really heavy-handed and obvious now because because we're used to it. But the idea of cutting between like two unrelated images in order to make a third thematic point is is really neat. Oh yeah, I mean no, absolutely. Like on a formalist, you know, on a, a level of like that, I totally appreciate it. And what the um the way that this movie is edited it's so it's so fast like it's amazing like you watch a lot of you know like for example Ingeborg Holm that we talked about um which is a very it's a very different kind of movie but it's a it's well, a very it, static it came out 12 years 12 years earlier but it might as well have been 100 years well yeah well and you know pick a movie from 1925 like it's not going to be cut as fast as this thing I well mean, even even like your your D.W. Griffith chase uh, sequences from the early twenties or your, your Keaton and Chaplin stuff there, they are cut much faster than the Seastrom film, but not nearly as fast not nearly as, as quick as, this as, thing. as Eisenstein. 
Yeah. And that's what I really like about this is that um, he he doesn't linger. And so your your brain has to keep up with what he's throwing out at you. And um, it's you don't get bored or at least I didn't get bored. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a slim film. It's only 82 minutes. But, um, you know, this plot, like you said, is very straightforward, but it keeps humming along because he's doing so many different things um with with the film you know construction is it's really um astounding yeah i i I thought a lot of uh of fritz lang when Mm -hmm. watching this uh the uh one of the things that the the evil factory bosses do is is they hire like uh asian agents uh provocateurs to infiltrate to the union and kind of spy on them and and kind of to lead them to uh, more violent action and uh, maybe half the film maybe a third of the film is just following these agents around and they all have like really comical like code names like the owl the owl and <laughs> yeah and there's like you know shots of of the individual and the animal that correlates to their name and you see why they get that name there's like the monkey and yeah there's there's all that stuff and that uh that kind of thing this kind of subculture subterranean world of of just these these agents that'll go around and fuck with people reminded me very much of the kind of worlds that that Fritz Lang creates in like the Dr. Mabuza films or sure, or even like something like M yeah like an an, an empire of crime or you know um the CD underworld um yeah and yeah. you have like the 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 fat industrialists that that you know gather around and drink fancy liquor and uh you know use uh use the the workers demands to to wipe lime juice off of their shoes uh yeah. is you know these are very much like the fat cats of of the of the lang films you know just these horrible evil capitalists dominating the world with you know like their secret treacheries like we also well, it, saw that in in Larjan as well yeah that's actually i was going to bring that up that, that, that those scenes in particular really reminded me of that um and and they're in this you know very cavernous um room you know they're they're like four seated to a table but then there's like just these vast expanses behind them. And they're just these, you know, whereas you see the workers all, you know, hundreds of people. And that's another thing, the cat, I mean, wrangling this amount of people for this movie is a lot of work. Um, but seeing, you know, the, the juxtaposition of all of the uh, workers in the tiny nooks and crannies of the factory and stuff. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's a massive factory. It's just this huge set and it's just teeming with people coming out of all these nooks and crannies. Whereas like the industrialist set is this vast space, but there's only like four of them. Mm-hmm. And they're, and they're really, there are three fat guys and one really skinny spindly guy with like horrible teeth. And, <laughs> and they're all like perfectly cast. I mean, they just look like seedy villains, you know, um, yeah, I love the. There's this this little non totally non realistic touch where where like one of the the capitalists has dropped like a slice of lime or 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 something on the on the floor and he wants his his servant to pick it up so he gives like a slight nod and then Eisenstein cuts to the servant who is like two hundred yards away down this massive yeah. hallway but yeah. you see him coming forward and like. The servant is expected to, you know, pay so much attention to to his master that he can see this imperceptible nod so far away and rush forward to to you know serve him. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's silly and unrealistic, but it, you know, it effectively conveys the idea of the distance between the rich and the poor and the unreasonable demands that, that the wealthy have for their employees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we've, we've talked about, so there, there are the three groups we've talked about. There's the, uh, there's the workers, um, who are the protagonists. There's the, the spies that you mentioned who are employed by the third group, which is the fat cats. But my favorite group in this movie is the fourth group, the rabble rousers Mm -hmm. that are, it's a, it, they're, they're, they're almost comical because they're, they live in this weird, like junkyard kingdom. And there's this, their leader is this, uh, crazed man with crazy hair. Um, who calls all of his, you know, minions and they pop out of these holes in the ground. Right. Again, uh, again with the circles, exactly with these giant well, circles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, you know, they, they ended up, you know, they instigate a uh, sort of riot as they, as they are um, tasked with burning down and looting a uh, liquor uh, distillery or something like that. Um, and those guys were great. Like they yeah. reminded me of like uh something you'd see in like, I don't know, like a post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of thing or something, you know, where you'd get Definitely, this, yeah. you know, and that, that was an interesting touch because like you said, all the other ones, you know, um, the fat cats are like the fat cats, but these guys were just weird. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, the film like, like Potemkin, if I remember right, it's, it's set in 1903. I think Potemkin might be 1905. So they're, they're pre-revolutionary films this right. is like life you know at right near the end of uh of czarist russia when things are are just about as bad as they can get they'll get they'll get worse in world war one when you have you know millions of casualties on the eastern front and and the whole russian society basically collapsing into to civil war and multiple revolutions but just the insanity of early 20th century russia cannot be understated and the the film is not realistic and and you know it paints things in in very stark you know black and white terms all of the workers are good all of the the capitalists Mm -hmm. are evil but i i don't have much trouble believing that it is fairly close to reality oh certainly as as you know as bizarre and weird as it is you know it would not surprise me if there was an army of of you know, of vagrants living in, in <laughs> barrels in a junkyard in, in pre-Soviet Russia. That's, that's very true. That's, that's absolutely true. So yeah, I was, I was, was talking about the, the, the collective hero and, uh, and Eisenstein actually wrote about it in, in his book. I was just flipping through just before we started reading, um, uh, about how, you know, he wanted, to to make the group the hero and not an individual that that's like part of the communist ideology is you need to put the union you need to put everyone ahead of the individual desires for the good of the whole uh and he moved away from that towards the end of his career and other people kind of took up that mantle there are other films with collective heroes there's like king vidor's our daily bread there's like the world war ii films i talked about there's you know uh, uh even something like uh like zulu um, has more of a, a collective point of view for the hero than, than an individual. But 
Hollywood, it seems to me, is really, really resistant to that idea. Like Hollywood cinema demand seems to demand that there be uh, an individual that the audience can identify with as the protagonist. And I'm not exactly sure why that should be. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a purely a business decision. Like, I, you know, I, I mean, not to go back into the genius of the system idea or whatever, but like, you know, they're cultivating stars as brands and using them, you know, to, I mean, those people will buy tickets, you know, most people buy tickets to movies to see Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, but as, as, back- as an audience member, though, does that, is that something that you look for in a film? Like I don't, I don't, want, I don't necessarily want to talk about like you know identifying personally with the events on screen and like relatability because that's a, that's an issue with Boyhood that we'll talk about some point if you ever actually get around to seeing Boyhood. <laughs> but I, no, this is the idea that with... there like needs to be like like a, a character that you can identify with on the screen as opposed to a mass of characters that you can identify with that you can not just like see yourself. Um, or not just see somebody to root for, but rather see yourself in a group, you know, as, as part of a group that is, you know, engaged in some kind of an action. Well, for me personally, I don't, I don't feel like I have that. I don't feel like I have that need where I, where I need, like, I, I'm fine with something like this, where it's a bunch of people. I'm, I, I'm excited about movies where it's a bunch of people I've never seen before. And I don't, and I, and if it flits between different characters or it's, you know, one giant body, um, doing something that for me, that's fine. But I think, um, I think there's a reason that it hasn't been explored that much. And I think it's because, um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to distinguish myself as, you know, different from the masses or whatever, but I, I feel like, um, that, uh, the majority of people do go for, for relatability, if you want to say that. And, and for, you know, um, seeing, you know, Tom Cruise or Tom, Tom Hanks is struggle on the Island or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards saying that, that Hollywood has a vested interest in, you know, kind of the, the economic and political system that Hollywood thrives under in not, in, in getting its audience to think of themselves as individuals and not as a collective. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, we, we live, we're, we're talking to two films about, about unions, and it's not a coincidence that they're both set before 1930. Like, we, right. live, we live in a very anti, anti-collective, anti-union time where we are encouraged to think of ourselves as individuals like everyone is out for for themselves and maybe their families and 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 you know this this idea that we should that we should band together or that we should see ourselves as workers first and individuals second is is anathema to to contemporary american you know uh political and economic life Oh, I agree with you absolutely, uh, completely. So, do you think do you think that is intentional on Hollywood's part? Like, do you think it, it's something that they are, you know, that the studios I, through the the process of the selection of screenplays or or what they advise people to do in film schools are are you know specifically avoiding the kinds of films that you know maybe not as as uh, obviously as Strike 
but you know might put forward this kind of collectivist ideal well i it's you know it's a fool's game to to try and guess what you know their motivations behind it i feel like i i feel like it's it's a little more obscured than that i feel like they don't think of it in terms of um of the way you you fra- you know framed it you know i think that maybe through you know generations or whatever it's been boiled down to more of like actually selling that personal story on a personal level <laughs> if that makes any sense like um where I, I i feel like they're they're used to doing it the way that they're doing it and um and and there are certain rules that need to be abided by if you're going to get a green light for something and i think that that is you know paramount i think that's i think that's one of the the main things is to um, tell a story through those terms instead of um, alternate, you know, and, and you could tell a story through even terms different than, than this. Um, you know, it's not, it, it, I don't think it's one or the other, um, but I feel like Hollywood tends to um, kind of just focus on, on that latter aspect um, yeah. more often than not, um, which is a shame because, you know, you and I, you know. This is an interesting thing that we could talk about a little bit more with Matewan because it kind of comes into play there too. Um, and, but we'll get to that when we get to that. I th- I think. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about this in in the context of Matewan and and how it is different from Strike because uh, you know, base and the basic elements of plot. Uh, these two films are very similar. They're almost identical, but uh, they're much different in in the way that they approach. Uh, their characters. Yes. So and, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that as we move on in the show. Okay. Uh, before so, we do- so uh, so I mean what so what do you think? Do you think that it's a conscious decision on Hollywood's part? Do you think that they're they um, they there's some maverick guy out there that's you know got this this kind of vision for how he wants to tell a story and Hollywood saying well we like a kernel of what you've got here, but you need to change the framework completely so that, you know, Tom Cruise is the hero. Um, Well, I I think it's, I think it's a more gradual process. I think uh, over time, like, I don't, I don't think that, that you can talk about something like Hollywood functioning with a single mind or any kind of intentionality. But I think, you know, through trial and error over 80 years or so, I think, I think Hollywood has, you know, kind of entrenched this idea that you need to have an individual hero, that the kind of movies that sell, that the kind of movies that people want to see are ones with, with you know, persons that they can root for and identify with, and they have to be people. They have to be individual people. Uh, right. That people don't want to watch a movie where a group, you know, triumphs over rich people. <laughs> Or, or anyone else. And, you know, in, and even in, in like a World War II movie, like you even compare something like uh, uh, Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One, which has a, a collective hero. It's got, it's got five different characters and it follows them throughout the war. Um, compare that to something like Saving Private Ryan, which has Tom Hanks. It, it has the same group where you have a bunch of people, but Tom Hanks is the hero. And all of the other characters are like tangential to Tom Hanks's story. And when it comes time to like save the day at the beginning of D-Day, it's Tom Hanks who, who, you know, single-handedly blows up a a bunker 
whereas in The Big Red One, in The Longest Day, it's a whole series of, of people who, you know, end up sacrificing themselves so that the, the army can blow up the bunker. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is um, it, then you look at something and, you know, this is always the comparison when you're talking about Saving Private Ryan or something, but um, what Terrence Malick does with the Thin Red Line, where he he internalizes, you know, he goes deep into individual characters, but who's the who's the rooting person, the person you're rooting for in the thin red line like like well i think i think the thin red line is even more radical <laughs> because that's what like, i'm saying like his, his its hero is it's not a collective hero it's like the collective you know subconscious of of all that's, of the men in war that's so. exactly what i'm saying is that that luckily there's still you know some people that have the clout or that or that manage to kind of morph that whole idea you know where yeah um, and 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 terence malick for you know as weird as he is as you know, not, you know, he's not Christopher Nolan successful, but he's been a pretty successful filmmaker for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Uh, he still manages to, you know, more or less thrive within the Hollywood slash, you know, Hollywood indie film world. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to talk about Hollywood as having anyone one mind about anything. Right. But, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he is a bit removed. I mean, yeah, like you said. I mean, it's not one giant corporation um, in a in an ivory tower that's making these these uh, you know sending these memos out about how to how to run things or whatever. Um, but that being said, he is removed from you know the day to day Hollywood machinery. You know, sure he gets his funding from you know certain people, but um, he he works on his own terms. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, but just the fact that the system can allow for people, people like him, sure, uh, to to succeed and to keep making movies, you know, it, it's not it's not all bad. On on the other hand, there is no film studio in America that would greenlight Strike. True, I I, I think that's true. Um, I would love to see Disney's Strike. <laughs> um but um yeah absolutely i mean this yeah i think i think meituan is the closest that they could come and and meituan i think is is a far less radical film than strike is oh absolutely absolutely i still like it though (laughs) (laughs) well we'll get to that let's let's uh let's move on all right. Um, so we're going to listen to some music today. Um, we're being really obvious here, people, um, because it's fun sometimes. Uh, so we're playing songs off of Aesop Rock's album, uh, Labor Days. Uh, this is the title track called Labor. Who put the monkey wrench well oil perfection is developed Just to watch these monitors spit white noise through your office space Automator, I affect Dolly G, pull this in a cloud clusters Brushing dust mites off your starving all revolution sound jugglers Delinquent vent for brick habitat, bob weave stick move fence And pause somewhere in the middle for slick invention This year's brain crop has been spectacular, I ain't manager, don't stay mad at the caliber Twist characters like twist characters. Uh, Tally up the alley, cat aggression in this thuggy, fresh, infested mess of baseline lust. An automatic B-boy crawl on can't combust circuit. Working these war pick ciphers with head striker stability and kamikaze chivalry. I alone, noble in a warm food feud. Walking dead generation, ain't nobody asking for your patience. 
grand opening holding me to face the fact I knew myself and didn't have to ask nobody else Talk about labor Fantastic predator shit put it working Searching for permanent first minus the murderous diversions Apologies won't lure me to the communal side story Nor will I sacrifice lifestyle to benefit jury temperament This old green goblin web cut up what's up against Creole a day Dream landscape spitting bedlam Charge the villagers nickels and nicotine to watch them fed for one disgruntled crack and a high noon. Sell popcorn, beer, and balloons. I got an inkling it's gonna be the one the children bicker over. It's that warrior's first baseball fury element. The glitches, motor sensory development. I, I am, am a star, star really. really. The big bang bastard's back with a one-way ticket to Beach Street. This all is life relevant. The human kind supply the man ratios, man learning. I work past the service. I work on what I love. I work the service on my burdens. And I work until the tears and a flat line closes the curtain. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's uh, news time here at the George Sanders Show. We've got a couple of things this week. Uh, I, first, I'd like to announce that um, nobody of importance has died since we recorded the show last. So uh, I'm sure that's not open. true. <laughs> well, I'm sure way. I'm sure many people have died, and each and every one of those deaths is a significant and 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 tragic event. See. You're 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 falling into Hollywood's game, Sean. You're you're everybody's special. This is it's like the Lego movie. No, the the whole is is special. Oh, the whole. Oh, oh, the the every loss diminishes the whole. Okay. Um, someone who's uh, alive been a bit cranky this week. Yeah, he's also alive. Uh, is the great uh, David Boardwell, um, who. Is a very you know I, I want to I want to say this really quickly. There was an episode a while back, um, and this has kind of been gnawing at me ever since then. I don't remember it was a while ago, but we were talking about Manny Farber, and I was talking about you know wishing there were unique voices like not not like Manny Farber because you know unique would be you know but unique voices out there because it seems like you know nowadays with film criticism a lot of things are homogenized and people talk about the same stuff all of, all the time and stuff um and as soon as we finished recording that episode i was like you know david boardwell's name popped in my head matt zollerseitz's name popped in my head and i was like i'm an idiot so david boardwell the guy's really smart really cool guy um and he uh he he got a bit uppity this week <laughs> on his blog um would you like to set it up, Sean? Yeah, well, this this is an, an ongoing uh, argument that that, that Boardwell has had going back decades, really, uh, as as his kind of school of film studies uh, has been engaged in various academic and, and non-academic battles with with other schools of film studies. But you know, the latest manifestation of it is. Uh, uh, Boardwell uh, attacking the New York Times for giving a film review column to two op-ed columnists that really don't know anything about film uh, and their habit of using uh, mainstream releases as excuses to talk about politics. And he thinks that does a disservice to, to film. He calls it uh, uh, you know, like a, was it zeitgeist criticism. Uh, where you you pick a movie like like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and then talk about you know how relevant it is to what's going on today in Gaza, even though 
nobody had any intention of, of talking about Gaza when they made the film and the film was in production for years before current events happened. And his, his argument is that the, this idea of, of, of reading movies through the lens of the current moment is a terrible way to look at movies because it's, it's, it's really short-sighted, it dates really easily, and it doesn't tell you anything of value about the film itself. And it's and as he points out, it's totally wrong. Like I mean, yeah. like um, yeah. He I mean he was great about him and great about this this piece. And I really like it. You know, I, I'm I'm making I'm poking fun by saying he's he's a prickly pear or whatever here. Um, you know, it, it it's just he it's kind of funny when he gets uh, angry like this. Um, but no, he you know he points out that it's totally cherry picking your argument, and it and it and uh, he you know has the proof to back it up. Um, and, uh, and it's totally true. I mean, you see these pieces that come down the pipeline, you get them mostly, well, I guess you get them seasonally, but you know, you really see them at the end of the year a lot where Mm -hmm. people are like jumping over themselves, uh, climbing over each other to, um, to herald what the year in film was like the year 2014 was the year of the, you know, and they try and tie it into, um, something beyond movies, um, and and that's a very narrow way of looking at the huge scope of cinema that's that's out there um, in any given year. You know, I mean, if you look at the top five in either of your or my um, lists from this year or last year or something like that, you know, those movies probably could couldn't be more different in terms of you know uh, thematic you know uh, interests and and everything else in between. And so. Um, you know, to just say like, oh, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street being released uh, means people are fed up with uh, fat cats or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he's uh, he's calling them out and I and rightfully so, because those things are just um, a waste of space, especially in something like the New York Times, which, um, as he mentions, it feels like a, a desperate kind of grab on their part to... Um, gain more eyeballs or something yeah there's there's like there's a word for it and it's it's called trolling um you know i don't subscribe to those words yeah it's it's you know saying controversial things on the internet in order to get attention uh yeah but i do i do think that that dr boardwell goes a little too far like like he he is a formalist he he does not care about film's relation to the present culture um, for a variety of reasons. And, and there's some fairly good reasons. Like, you know, the culture is never one thing. And to try and, and say that, that a film is indicative of the culture because it has something in common with this particular strain of the culture doesn't really say anything about the culture as a whole. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't say something valuable. especially especially in a case when in in an instance which happens all the time when films are attempting to engage with something that is in the culture in the present or either was in the past and i think that happens a lot and you know a, a a purely formalist look at at a film like um you know, dazed and confused or something would lead valuable insights. But I think it'd be, you know, you'd be missing out if you didn't talk about the way that it like, you know, connected to the culture that it's depicting on screen. 
but I th- but he acknowledges that in his piece. I mean, it's it's kind of buried near the bottom. But I mean, he he admits to as 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 much. I mean, there are movies that are um, clearly in communication with their current events and the you know like the dark knight movies you know the the nolan batman movies as you know heavy-handed and ridiculous as they are you know they're obviously those are well those that those present another problem where which is uh indicative of of much contemporary hollywood cinema where where it's it's calculated to be incoherent like there, there is something for everyone of every you know political or cultural persuasion in the film, so that as a whole it doesn't come together. But if you go out there, you know, if you go into the film looking to see confirmation of your worldview, you will find it in the film. Well, yeah, but see, I just use that as I, I totally agree with you. Um, I don't want to get into a Christopher Nolan thing. I, you're absolutely right. Um, but I'm saying that... Um, well, he has that great quote from, from Nolan at, at, towards the end where, where he's like, we, we just you know threw all that shit in there to see what would stick. <laughs> Which, you know, that, that's Christopher Nolan, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. There you go. Um, but no, you, you're... you're um, your point is is well taken, um, but I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't really think he's completely excluding that. I think he's taking aim at a very specific thing here. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a matter of degree. Like he's he's taking aim at at bad criticism. Do you think he's trolling? Do you think he's trolling the trolls? Uh, you know, I think he puts out a post like this every every once in a while as like a general reminder. It's like, hey, form Stop matter, <laughs> form form matters. This this kind of zeitgeisty stuff is is dumb, and we should be better than this. Uh, it's not it's not a new argument from him, but it's you know it, it's an argument worth it's it's an argument worth making. Uh, I. I I personally would not go as far as he does down the formalist path. Like I I I do think that that the way that that film reflects and and defines and interacts with culture is interesting and I think the the idea of a mass culture is just a, a an interesting concept to me and and whether or not there e- even is one. Um I'm reading uh uh, you know, the uh, Rick Perlstein just came out with a with a new book about uh, uh, the nineteen seventy six presidential campaign, and I oh, read right. his uh, his previous book uh, Nixon Land a couple of years ago, and I wanted to read the new book, but I decided to read the one that came before Nixon Land first. So I'm reading his his book about Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. right now, and it it's fascinating to me the way we think about the culture of of the nineteen sixties, and it's all from the left. We think of the civil rights movement. We think of hippies. We think of like Vietnam War protests. We think of uh, uh, students for a democratic society. But there's this whole other culture of the '60s that is like the the Goldwater Republicans, and it's the backlash against the civil rights, and it's the Southern strategy, and it's Nixon and Reagan. And when we think of the '60s, we think of hippies. We don't think of Karl Rove. But Karl Rove is is just as much a product of that culture and and just as much a baby boomer as as Bill Clinton, and so it, you know it, it's 
that's interesting to me how these two you know opposing things can exist at the same time in the same mass culture but one of them will will dominate our conversation about when we talk about the culture as a whole yeah but that that's because that's because who's controlling the conversation you know what i mean like um, well, what it, what, that, it, what it makes me want to do is look for like a common ground between the two and see if there's like, you know, there are other indications of the same, you know, kind of core, you know, value that uh, this group of people went off in this direction, this group of people went off in the other direction, but they both started from the same point, And that same point has other reflections in the culture and other directions that it may have gone. Right. Um, but does that make any sense at all? <laughs> it makes, yeah, it makes sense. But, um, I don't think, um, I don't know how that's against what David Boardwell's, I mean, I, I, I feel like his argument here is, is kind of coming from the same angle where they're, I mean, I get, well, I don't well, know. I, I think he's, he's arguing for the fact that, um, there are many, you know, views and opinions and we can't just like, you know, assume one uh, hive mind or whatever. Sure. Um, well, like, like with, take, take a film like Bonnie and Clyde, which is generally seen as like a, a, a new Hollywood film is like part of the new Hollywood in the 1960s, reflective of this new generation. And it's generally seen in, in leftist terms as like uh, Bonnie and Clyde are like, you know, proto hippies, even though it's set in the thirties. Um, but I, w- I would be interested in a in a you know a cultural analysis of Body and Clyde that looked at it as uh, indicative of the Goldwater generation I see of the nineteen sixties. And okay, so you're... and if it can be read two ways, then there must be you know something in common. And if that thing in common says something particular about that generation and that time and place, then that is something that's worth exploring. I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, um, and I, I think. I think if there were more correctives or, you know, correctives is probably the wrong term, but if, um, if there was more of a discussion in terms of these zeitgeisty things or these, um, you know, um, kind of all encompassing, um, critical analysis of, of something like that, where you're not going to, like the, the like you said, the problem with something like Bonnie and Clyde is it's all coming from one perspective. So I think that the, you could change the whole or at least change my animosity towards these kinds of things. Um, if there was more of a balance of people saying, well, no, I disagree. This movie is, uh, or, or not necessarily disagreeing, but just saying like, you can read this the opposite way or something like that. But the problem is, um, is that most of the time, this kind of stuff is just an echo chamber where people are just, uh, you know, kind of regurgitating the same, observations uh, yeah definitely over like, and over and over and over again which makes it completely numbing you know right which is which is why i'd say that the, the problem isn't so much uh zeitgeist criticism in and of itself as so, so much bad zeitgeist criticism yeah that's that's fair i mean I, I find that really interesting i hadn't thought about it that way and i um, i would love to read Things that were honestly like, you know, I mean, if there's one thing I hate more than um, hive mind stuff is uh, 
contrarianism just to be you know contrary so i if there was like genuine honest like appraisals of something that saw something from a completely different angle i would eat that stuff up that would be great you know to have some sort of palate cleanser or whatever yeah that's um, that's that's the problem is that like that it seems like the kind of people who who want to to like go against that that kind of grain are are really bad at arguing yeah <laughs> it's the internet <laughs> you get your 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 armand whites of the world that's, yeah exactly you know that that's um what i was thinking of but um you make a really good point like that would that would be interesting or it would it would be interesting to see someone take on um, those you know what's that book the Raging Bulls book or whatever um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls yeah but yeah. like that book is the, is is bad well that's what I'm saying is do the opposite hmm. you know what I mean or I don't know that's yeah. an interesting point yeah. um, second piece of news this week uh, is uh, us going to be the uh, prickly pears and and complaining. <laughs> um, there's a channel on TV uh, called FXX, uh, right? That's what it's called. Is it? Isn't it on the internet? Oh, is it on the internet? I think it's on the internet. Well, this goes to show how out of touch I am completely. I thought it was a cable channel or something. I, I really, honestly, I don't know. So we're about to talk about something that we don't know anything about. Is clearly what's going I, on. I here. thought it was an internet, like on demand thing. It might be an actual channel. It doesn't really matter. the The point is, they ran they ran all of the Simpsons episodes, and in the wrong aspect, and ratio. they cropped and stretched them to sixteen by nine. When for like the first twenty seasons, it was on the air. It was four by three. Yeah, uh, fuck that. Like that is like the most annoying. Like I so occasionally I have reason to be in a motel room, um, or something. <laughs> you know that was a really weird way of me saying that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. That could be used as blackmail. <laughs> um, no, but when I go on vacation or something, you know, I, I'm, sure. I'm in a motel room. You know, jo you know, last Fourth uh, of July, I was in uh, Canada. You know, escaping the fireworks, and uh, you know, you turn on the TV as you want to do. You know, um, and something like Seinfeld's on, but it's it's stretched and it's cropped and it's unwatchable. Like I don't know how anybody can watch something like that. I I just I cannot fathom it because um they, yeah even when, when, whenever i'm in a hotel i i always uh uh reconfigure the television and it's really obnoxious like sometimes the maids will come in and and put it back mm -hmm. to the to stretched i really hate that what was interesting is i when i was actually in canada um the i think that wait what was this well i'm gonna go off on a tangent never mind cut that part out um okay. yeah cut that out um, yeah, so, uh, you know, the saddest part about this, though, is that I think FXX, um, they are getting less complaints uh, about the fact that they, they fucked with it than they would if they had left it alone and people, like, contacted their cable provider saying, um, <laughs> there are black bars on the side of my screen. Like, I think a lot of people, and I know people who I... A relation you know to that um that want to fill the screen no matter what and it's the most aggravating thing on the planet to be sitting in a room with somebody and them you know steadfastly you know sticking to their guns when you can't even see like the top of homer simpson's head 
Yeah, it's it's appalling, and and worse are like the the networks. Not and FXS is not the only uh, channel that does this. That that when they rebroadcast uh, reruns of shows like like Friends or Seinfeld or something, the the cable feed that they send out is is stretched. Right. Exactly. So like it, on uh, like TBS or something, it's impossible to watch Friends where you know everyone doesn't look really fat because they stretch out the image. Uh, uh, um, we watch in my house uh, a lot of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, and on the DVDs of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, everything is is in this nice four by three ratio. But on the Disney Junior Channel, it's all stretched. So you know, Girl Mouse is suddenly really fat on the TV, and it's it's really disconcerting and it's really ugly. And you know, I'm trying to teach my kids correctly, but it's Are hard you- when the TV networks. You know, fuck with things like this. Are you fat shaming mice, female mice, Sean? Is that what you just did? <laughs> Girl mouse is not fat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's a perfectly um, normal sized mouse, <laughs> but when you stretch out her image, she's all distorted. She gets all fat and ugly. <laughs> yeah. And that's not the Who kind of message we that? want to send to our children. We want our children to be in the proper aspect ratio. It's true. No, you know. I, this is a the huge pet peeve of mine, and um, I just I can't stand it. So luckily, I own uh, all the good seasons of The Simpsons on DVD, and that's how I watch them. And everybody else uh, can know. go to hell. Yeah, uh, I, w- I will say this: like uh, I was uh, recently uh, in Spokane visiting my family, and I noticed that the the TV that they have is uh is zoomed in it's like zoomed in as far as it can go and mm-hmm. you know i i asked my 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 mom and my my grandfather you know why why do you have the tv zoomed in like that it, it like distorts everything and they gave me a reasonable answer which is that my my 85 year old grandfather has vision problems and he has trouble as it is making out like the baseball game so they have it zoomed in as far as he can so he can see as much of it as possible that is a good excuse for doing that. Oh well, yeah, I mean, sure, but uh... I have not heard any other good excuses. <laughs> so, and basically, what I'm saying is that unless FX is FFX, X, unless <laughs> FXX thinks its audience is 85 year old partially blind people, they have no excuse for what they did. They, absolutely no excuse. Absolutely no excuse. Um, yeah. So that. Yeah. Get off our lawn too while you're at it. Um, speaking of okay, well, speaking of things that you are permitting yourself, you know your your untainted, uh, stretched and cropped eyes to see. Uh, what's Sean watching? Well, I had I had a lot of trouble thinking of of what I've been watching because like the thing that I want to talk about that I've been watching is also going to be my cinema central for movies about work, so I don't want to you know combine the two. Uh, so I guess I'll I'll talk about Viva Las Vegas, uh, the Elvis a movie. movie. Not about work. Well, it's kind of about work. <laughs> it's about uh, it's Elvis, and he's in Vegas, and he's a race car driver, and he meets Anne Margaret. And she doesn't like him, and then she does like him, and then she wants him to give up race car driving, and then uh, she sings, he sings a sad song, and then he races a car, and then the movie ends. <laughs> so take that, Anne Margaret. Yeah, and uh, and she's back with him, 
and it's you know it ends happily with them all together. So, so I just I, mean, I just spoiled Viva Las Vegas. Have you ever seen an Elvis movie? I've never seen an Elvis movie. I haven't seen Blue Hawaii or any of that stuff. How are are they good? Are they I mean, the, are the they only other one I've seen is is Jailhouse Rock, which which uh, was okay. Uh, Viva Las Vegas though is directed by George Sidney, who is like my favorite uh, obscure MGM musical director. Mm-hmm. Uh, he. Uh, his musicals, at least, like the the few uh, dramatic films I've seen from him, are not all that interesting. Or like uh, non musical films, I guess they're all, they're comedies, but they're not as interesting. But his musicals are just completely insane. Like the the most the most famous is, is probably Kiss Me Kate, mm-hmm. which uh, is a movie that I love more than I think anyone else on the planet. Speaking of another Metro classic, that actually uh, Kiss Me Kate did okay. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was it was mediocre. Yeah, <laughs> on, on the on the low side, but uh, he did this one called Jupiter's Darling, which is a uh, an Esther Williams film. Have you ever seen any Esther Williams films? I don't think so. Okay, uh, she she was the uh, the MGM star that had been like a, a swimming champion. So all of her musicals involve her like uh, doing like synchronized swimming routines in a pool. So every one of the mo- the movies that she's in contrives some reason to get her into a pool so they can have like this underwater musical sequence. Sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, so Jupiter's Darling is set in uh, in like during the uh, the Punic Wars between Rome and, and Carthage, and Howard Keel plays Hannibal, and George Sanders is uh, Esther Williams' fiance, and uh, he's like the he's like a Roman commander. Uh-huh. And and uh, she like cheats on him with Howard Keel. Well, you love yourself some Howard Keel too. I do. So. I do love Howard Keel. And then it's got like a, a Marge and Gower Champion, who were this uh, husband and wife uh, uh, song and dance team. As uh, she is Esther Williams' slave, and she buys her husband in the slave market, and then they like do a bunch of dancing. And then there's an elephant involved, and yeah. <laughs> It's really weird. This isn't so making any, This isn't making any sense at all, but it is <laughs> it is the craziest mainstream Hollywood movie I think I've ever seen. Wow. And and I love it. And and so when whenever there's like a George Sidney movie on, I, I will seek it out. And and Fever Las Vegas is not a, a good movie, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, alone among uh, you know directors of of classical Hollywood musicals, George Sidney actually you know had some success with rock and roll films, like with mm-hmm. with the Elvis film, and sure. he brings that that same kind of of classical style to the musical sequences to this this movie, this Viva Las Vegas, which came out I think the same year as a hard the same year as a, a Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. which you know, totally transform the, the musical film. Like it, sure. it's, it's interesting to me how the musical dies when rock and roll comes about. And then it, it like transmutes into all of these newer, uh, different kinds of forms. You see like the concert film coming around you see like the, the British invasion films and you get, you know, you have musicals come along later, like pennies from heaven that, you know, self-consciously harkens back or something like all that jazz, which, uh, totally deconstructs the idea of the Hollywood musical film. But there are very few classical rock and roll films. 
and uh, Viva Las Vegas kind of is that. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I mean, you know, I'm not the hugest Elvis fan, um, so it, you know, it's not something I seek out. But I, I definitely have been intrigued by that era because it seems like a weird. Um, yeah, a weird kind of blip on the radar or, or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm always kind of intrigued by those kinds of things. So I should check it out. Yeah. Cool. Uh, oh, and, and Anne Margaret is really pretty. <laughs> I was hoping we could get through it without that coming up, but <laughs> there you go. I just got to say, uh, she's, she's pretty. <laughs> and the other, the other George Sidney rock and roll musical, uh, which is, is much better, I think, is, uh, is Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, with uh, with Dick Van Dyke, of mm-hmm. all people, uh, and that is is it's it's very much like a a rock and roll movie from the perspective of an older generation trying to understand, while at the same time this younger generation of rock and roll kids really doesn't care what the older generation thinks about them. So it's it's this movie about the generation gap that that approaches it in really interesting ways, and it's got a lot of great musical numbers and and uh, a fantastic Anne Margaret performance in it. So, well, yeah. speaking of you know, speaking of pretty faces like Anne Margaret, um, our person of the week this week is uh, Werner Herzog, um, who you know what I would love to see is a Werner Herzog musical, <laughs> either either some, uh, either directed by him or starring him. Right. Well, he's directed some uh, live opera. I know he's done that. Um, I wonder if that'll ever creep into. Uh, any of his actual feature films, yeah, or it was whatever. probably like but, uh, a really very dour Germanic, you know. I'm sure opera. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but Werner Herzog celebrating a birthday this week. I believe his birthday is on September 5th. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, you know, it, we haven't really talked about Herzog too much on the show before, which is kind of shocking. We've gotten this far, um, and, and you know, not only is his birthday. Um, this week, but there was a recent release of a, a huge box set of uh, like 16 of his movies on Blu-ray. Um, it was put out by Shout Factory, I think. Yeah. Somebody like that. Somebody like um, that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, Werner Herzog, you, you've said this before about people like um, Hitchcock and Kurosawa, who they're kind of like gateway directors um, to get you in. Like, you know, they kind of show you what's possible with film or whatever. Um, and I would I would throw it personally uh, Herzog into that bunch, too, because um, I saw a lot of his movies in quick succession um, when I first started really getting into film. You know, he's, you've got the great um, collaborations with Klaus Kinski um, and you know his and then his you know documentaries which he's been making you know concurrently with his feature films ever since you know from the beginning um and he's kind of done he's kind of he he do he does more of those nowadays uh and um than feature films you know his feature film rate has uh, kind of dwindled a bit but he's he pumps out like a documentary a year or every other year um but what what are your thoughts on on Herzog? Like, uh, when did you first get into him, and um, what's your favorite Herzog feature? Uh, I saw Aguirre a long time ago, uh, maybe fifteen years ago, as one of like the the first like uh, art movies. You know, you get like a list of uh, you know 
like a sight and sound list or something like that. And, and, and that's a movie that's on it. Uh, and I thought it was, it was really depressing. Uh, <laughs> I saw, you can see why I, I gravitated towards it. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I didn't see any others for, for, for quite a while. And then I, I saw like Fitzcarraldo and, and his Nosferatu and, and really loved those. Uh, Fitzcarraldo is my, my favorite of his films. And, Herzog is is weird. I have the the two DVD box sets that were put out uh, a while ago. There's like the one with uh, with him and and Kinski, and then there's the other one that has like uh, like some of the Bruno S films and and some of the documentaries. Um, I've had them for a really long time, but I haven't watched any of them. Mm. Other than like the the four big uh, uh, Kinski films, uh, Aguirre, Nosferatu. Uh, uh, Fitzcarraldo and another one. Cobra Verde? No. Toysek? My no. Best Fiend? No. Maybe just the three. I, 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 think, just that's, the, I think that's all you got. Yep. Yeah. yeah, just the three. Uh, just the three big uh, 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 Kinski films. And uh, I've also seen uh, the the Bruno S one, not the not Stroysek, the other one. Uh, Every man for himself, but God against all, mm. which is a great title. And, Beautiful title, yeah. And and it has a, like a different title that it's used that is more commonly used that is no good. Uh, the Enigma of Casper Hauser. That's right. a much less interesting title than Every Man for Himself and God Against All. I just yes. want to put that but on. That, the re- I, mean, I just want to put that on uh, the record. <laughs> sure, I. I I'll let I'll let Werner know. I'll send him a postcard. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, my, the, my my point is that I like Herzog. I like uh, I pretty much liked every one of his movies that I've seen, but I'm not all that motivated to to go and and watch all of the others, even though I have readily ready access to them because they are sitting here in my house. Right. And I'm I'm not exactly sure why that is. Um, do you have a theory? Well, you did. I, well, you, you know, said that, you know, Gary is, a, you know, it's a very depressing film and, um, Stroyzek is, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of a running theme with Werner Herzog, although, well, you know, recent- Fitzcarraldo, I don't find depressing at all. I find Fitzcarraldo really uplifting. I think it has like one of the great endings in, in, in cinema and Nosferatu, I think is hilarious. Uh, I think Rescue Dawn uh, has a, a great happy ending. Um, yeah, I don't know. A Grizzly Man does not. I I was gonna. <laughs> Werner Herzog has kind of become a bit of a parody of himself. I still love the guy, um, but it it seems like there's the the iconic scene of him in Burden of Dreams, um, the Les Blank documentary about Fitzcarraldo, where he's talking about. Um, how nature is just this violent cesspool of fornication and, you know, decay and stuff. And I feel like now, like that seems like a very, well, maybe not. I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, he seems like he genuinely means it during that documentary. Like, like things were going pretty rough for him at the time. Uh, um, nowadays he seems to have mellowed a little bit and kind of used that persona for, um, hilarity like like some of his later documentaries um have these herzogian voiceovers that 
mention the same kind of stuff, but it's kind of, you know, winking at you a little bit. Um, and I actually like that. Like, I think stuff that like, um, encounters at the end of the world, um, I think is, is one of the funniest comedies of the last like 10 years, his documentary about Antarctica. Um, even though, you know, it features a suicidal penguin and stuff. And, um, and he, yeah, see, and he does see that one. I think, I think it, it, it exists. Like the only things I remember out of it are the penguin which is a great scene. And then like these awesome shots of, of underneath the ice flows. And I don't really remember anything else about the film and that well, and see, this is, that's fine. But um, he has a lot of movies that he's, you know, he works so quickly or it seems to me that he works so quickly that he has a lot of movies that are actually kind of slight. Um, and I actually, Wh- recently, wheel of time struck me that way. Wheel of time is exactly That's one of the ones I was going to mention where he had this plan to make this documentary about, you know, well, the wheel of time and, and, but the Dalai Lama was supposed to show up and there was supposed to, there was supposed to be more there yeah. and he didn't get the footage, but he still made a movie out of it anyway. Um, which, you know, it's kind of, you know, just it's, make it's, it move on. Yeah. I and mean, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's a, it's a movie I like, but it's not, you know, it doesn't make me excited to go out and watch another Herzog documentary. Right. You know? I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I, um, I like his fiction films much more than his documentaries. Although I think I, my, my favorite of the documentaries is probably uh, cave of forgotten dreams. Yeah, that was a very, I, I enjoyed that. I, I really like Grizzly Man. Um, I know that's the one most people suggest, but um, that's the one I've seen a couple of times and I think it's a really good, blend of of all of kind of Herzog's themes coming together um and Timothy Treadwell is uh an idiot uh but it's it's still like kind of captivating to watch um but I've seen I've seen pretty much every Herzog movie released in the last 10 years or so I saw Into the Abyss uh his um death row one that came out and it's another one that's kind of slight you it seems like he filmed it over a weekend you know it's it's got some interesting things to it you know but i'm really looking forward like like you i want more um uh, feature films from him um i know he's yeah, working I re- on I, re- I really enjoyed his bad lieutenant film me too i, I was a big yeah. big fan of that um i kind of want to revisit my son my son what have you done um which i saw when it came out, it played the Northwest Film Forum, and I I did not get on its wavelength. Um, but it's, but it's been a movie I've been thinking about recently. And actually, someone just today, right before we recorded, someone that uh, I follow on Letterboxd just rewatched it and gave it this glowing review that mm. kind of made me want to see it through that uh, lens. And um, so yeah, um, but there, it's so funny because I made this list of Herzog films, and there's a lot of movies on there. But there's so many more that I haven't seen. Um, and like you, um, besides seeing the new one when it comes out, I haven't gone backwards and delved too deep into his uh, early stuff. Like, I really want to see um, Even Dwarf Started Small, uh, which is one of his first films, and um, Heart of Glass. And he's got a lot of stuff, you know, that uh, I just haven't checked out that I know is, is, is you know, peak stuff for him. So, um yeah, I saw I saw Cave of Forgotten Dreams on a weekday matinee at the mall in Federal Way, uh, and it played the mall because it was in 3D, and it was at a time when there wasn't a lot of 3D content out there. 
right. so just the idea that a Herzog film would play at the mall is is was mind blowing enough. But a documentary about about cave paintings in three D, and of course I was the only person in the theater, right? Which it seemed like a, a very Herzogian way to spend a, a, like a Tuesday morning. Totally. And you know what I love about that movie? I love the coda. I love the albino alligators, which just comes out of absolutely nowhere um, and has like no bearing on the, on the movie before it. But it's just like this kind of final, like, what the hell? Um, it's great. It's really fun. Uh, yeah. yeah. So happy birthday, Werner. Um, we look forward to your next movie. You know, the movie he's working on right now, I think has been in development for a long time. So hopefully it's going to be um, a big deal. You know, he's going to put a lot of effort into it. Uh, one of the, uh, one of my favorite things about Metro classics was, was our second series. We did, uh, we did the, the three Herzog movies and then we did three Terrence Malick movies. And the idea was just that they have like, you know, opposing views of nature. It wasn't anything more complicated than that. But then in watching them, we, we saw that, that Nosferatu and the new world both use the same bit of music but they use them for completely different purposes, and it's the uh, it's the intro to uh, to Das Rheingold. To, to das Rheingold. It's the the Vorspiel where where you know like the river is like coming to life, and and the the uh, you know it's like uh, the the spirits are are encanting the Rhine to to come out, and in the New World, it's like the dawn of this new world, and in Nosferatu, it's like the dawn of like the vampire. <laughs> Sneaking around. Right. Yeah, it's funny because in Nosferatu it's terrifying, yeah. and in the New World it makes you want to cry like a baby. Um, yep. It's amazing yep. um, to see the to see the same exact thing in the hands of two very different masters using it to completely different ends, and both being totally effective. Yep. Um, and as the, la- the last thing I was going to say is, you know, my knee jerk answer would always be Aguirre um, as my favorite uh, Herzog film, but the more I think about it and the more times I see it, I actually might say his Nosferatu is my favorite of his films. I just absolutely adore that movie. I think it's it's just, it's really great. Herzog is great at endings. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he is. Um, Unlike us who can't seem to end this conversation. Um, Well, Speaking of work, and, and hopefully he puts a lot of work into his next movie, and he works tirelessly. Let's talk about that. That was, that was nice. That was seamless. Work. Wasn't that great? Yeah. Wasn't that great? Talk about endings there. Um, <laughs> so obviously labor, labor days here on the show. Um, so we're selecting our our cinema essential work film. So. Did you have any rules? Did you have any idea what that meant, Sean? Were you pretty open-ended about it? Uh, I mostly just didn't want to talk about Whisper of the Heart because we've talked about that. I think uh, I don't know if we've talked about it on this show. We talked about it on the the uh, Ghibli podcast we did. Um, so I wanted I wanted to talk about something else. And uh, serendipitously, when uh, we were making our our weekly trip to to Scarecrow this week, uh, everyone out there in the audience drink. uh uh uh, we were uh we were upstairs uh picking out uh, my my wife wanted me to rent a a william goldman movie for her so we had to to go upstairs out of the director's section 
And while we were up there, my my daughter, who's just about to turn three, just kind of took off running, which she's wont to do at Scarecrow. And and I caught up with her in the documentary section, and she was like standing right in front of the the Frederick Wiseman section, where where Scarecrow has all of his films on DVD. And I she's I, she's your daughter. No paternity test needed. She's your daughter. I, I wasn't planning on <laughs> on renting those. Like I had a list of like other movies that I wanted to get. Um, like you know. John Carpenter, Brian De Palma, you know, you know, Hong Kong movies, various things that, you know, I've been meaning to watch. But hey, Wiseman movie. So I I grabbed a couple of those and that's what I'm gonna watch instead. And uh you know, as as you know, we were talking about movies about work and I'm I'm watching uh I started uh ballet last night. Uh, I'm about halfway through it. Uh Wiseman's movies, you know, tend to be categorized as being about institutions, but but more than that, they're about work. They're about the people that work in institutions. And that's what I really love about the, the movies of his that I've seen is, is just watching people work. And it's not, you know, some kind of grand, you know, analysis of institutions and how they like dehumanize people. And, and you know, maybe that's more prevalent in his earlier films, which I haven't seen. Um, but the ones that I have, uh, uh, Ballet, La Dance at Berkeley, uh, Boxing Gym, are are all about people at work and and it, there's just like a, a very basic very primal joy that i get out of seeing people do things do tasks on screen and i don't know if it's like a voyeuristic thing or if it's like a wish fulfillment because i don't have a job but <laughs> but i i i really like watching people work in frederick wiseman films you know, I can set up like my iPhone uh, at the at my desk at work, and I can send you like the eight hour video if you want to just watch me. Yeah, uh, I would, I would be fascinated. That. Like one of, <laughs> one of my favorite movies of of the century is uh, is this Chinese movie called Oxide Two that consists entirely of 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 a woman and her parents making dumplings. Yeah, which, and it, and yeah. it goes on for two and a half hours, and I love it. Yeah, I'm really interested in that movie. And I'm interested in Wiseman, too. You know, uh, this is the week where I once again mention all the movies I've never seen. Um, and uh, Boxing Gym in particular, I've heard about, I think it was mentioned on a film spotting uh, a couple years ago or something. Um, and that really intrigued me. And I, I do want to catch those. And, um, you know, the thing with him is, I mean, we're lucky, but, you know, his stuff is not readily available for most people. Um, so I, I need to take advantage and, and uh, yeah, you can't, get you, on you can't really like rent them anywhere. They don't, they don't stream. They, they all do play on PBS. He has like some kind of contractual thing. Uh, the one with said at like the burlesque theater didn't because of boobs, but right. all, all of his others play on PBS. That's how I saw the dance and, uh, and, and boxing gym. Uh, I actually saw it at Berkeley at the theater at the, the Northwest Film Forum, and I'm hoping that uh, National Gallery, which is his latest film, will make it to the Vancouver Film Festival because I really want to see that one. Um, but yeah, Scarecrow has the complete collection. Like you can you can buy all of his movies from his website, but they're really expensive. So it's great to have a, a video store that has gone ahead and bought them and will rent them to me. <laughs> so I can watch them. I need, I need to watch all of like the, his early ones, like a high school or, or Tidka yeah. Follies and, you know, the, the more classic ones. I just, I haven't seen those. Um, I like movies about, uh, uh, people dancing though. So, so ballet, the dance, crazy horse. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what, well, what is, what is your cinema central movie about work? 
is well, it, is, is is it not... whisper of the heart <laughs> no it's on the same thread though uh, and i would like to say you know uh, we'll probably be talking about whisper of the heart um further down the line because uh we did do our ghibli podcast uh for they shot pictures but um we are planning on talking about the tale of princess kaguya uh when that comes out here uh in a few weeks so uh i think we'll save the ghibli stuff for that talk sure. um but I did pick a cartoon. <laughs> um, I, I ran through a lot of a lot of movies because there are a lot of great movies that um, feature work and depict work and stuff. Um, but I actually thought about and uh, it's it's not my favorite film um, by Pixar um, by a long shot. Um, but I thought about Monsters Incorporated, and mm. um, I think that movie really has a good. It really breaks down the dynamics of a workplace. Um, you know, the relationship between Mike Wazowski and Sully, um, but then also, you know, Steve Buscemi's uh, character, Randall, um, who we've all worked with a Randall, you know, this this kind of, you know, I mean, maybe not as slimy and nefarious, but, you know, someone that, you know, is just not quite right. And they're, you know, trying to climb up the chain of command, but the wrong way. And, you know, characters like Roz. And I just feel like um, it really depicts kind of, that environment really well in this, you know, obviously fantastical world of, of monsters and stuff like that. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out because when I was thinking about Pixar, I went off on a tangent and um, this is less to do about work, but uh, the depictions that are a uh, uh, peer of work in uh, the Incredibles, when uh, Mr. Incredibles working at, you know, he has a desk job. Um, Brad Bird really frames those really well. And he, he gets the perfect lighting, um, the fluorescent lighting that's kind of just soul killing, um, and the confinement it's, it's really well done. So I'm giving a shout out to, um, Pixar and Monsters Inc in, in particular, um, for their, uh, depictions of work. Cause I like cartoons. <laughs> cool. Um, so without further ado, um, let's talk about our second film this week. Uh, John Sayles film, uh, Mate One from 1987. Here's a clip. You won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair. But you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment. It's like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They'll use you until you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much coal you can load or how long your family has lived on this land. If you stand alone, you're just so much shit to those people. You think this man is your enemy? Huh? This is a worker. Any union keeps this man out ain't a union. It's a goddamn club. Now they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world, them that work and them that don't. You work, they don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. 
So that was a clip from Mate One, uh, John Sayles' film from 1987, as I said. Um, the film is based on a true story um, set in a West Virginia mining town where um, the miners, uh, a labor organizer comes to town, played by Chris Cooper, and he kind of, uh, he instigates a strike. They, um, the miners have all these demands. The mining company is, uh, you know, steadfast in refusing to accept any of those demands. Um, and they go out of their way um, to try and discredit uh, Chris Cooper in particular and to kind of, you know, um, instill unrest amongst the um, strikers. Um, there are also tensions amongst the strikers because there are kind of subsets that they, the old guard, you know, sees as scabs, um, immigrants, um, Italian immigrants and, uh, African Americans that have come to town recently. Um, so there's all these kind of tensions at play, um, within this film. And, uh, the, the cast is, is very strong. Um, a lot of John Sayles regulars appear here. Um, David Strathairn, uh, is in here as a, uh, town sheriff and, um, you get uh, Will Oldham from Palace Music, uh, Bonnie Prince Billy, uh, very young here. He plays uh, a preacher who's, uh, or an aspiring preacher who's also um, just joining the uh, miners himself. And um, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones, yeah, he's in here. Um, and I was going to say, I was, I was, I was going to bring in Mary McDonald, um, mm. who plays uh, Will Oldham's mom. Um, you know why I'm bringing up her? Because she's, she she's the president in Battlestar Galactica? Wrong. She and David Strathairn appeared in a previous George Sanders selection. Drum roll, please. What is it, Sean? Uh, no idea. Sneakers! Sneakers, of course. Yeah! <laughs> also with James Earl Jones. That's right! Wait, yeah. James Earl Jones, isn't it? Yes. He's the FBI guy who comes in at the end. Oh, you're right for the yeah. very end. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This uh, is also the second uh, George Sanders show we've seen James Earl Jones play baseball. That's true. <laughs> that's totally true. <laughs> so, Mate One is a, a collective story in so many ways. You know, it brings brings us together as a show, brings our disparate episodes together, um, and it's it's a you know I haven't seen many John Sayles films, but this seems like quintessential John Sayles to me. Um, it deals with a time in the past, in America's past um, in particular, um, and its politics are on its sleeve. Um, you know, he's he's very open about um, his opinions on on that kind of stuff. Um, so we discussed at the beginning of the show when we were talking about Strike that these two movies are almost identical in plot there's there's a group of workers who are you know um disenchanted with their um you know their role and they decide to strike and bad things happen because bosses are evil basically yeah, the same right, right down to the said like like in the, the early days of of the union forming they set up a camp and in the beginning everything is nice and then at the end, everything is like really desperate as as the strike goes on and on, and uh, and like like in strike, it all ends in like this this you know spasm of of murder and violence. Yes, um, but as we were saying, and we were leading to um, during our discussion of strike, uh, the way these movies go about telling 
telling their stories are very different. Uh, I think that can be said um, on pretty much every level. Um, you know, Mate One is not um, experimental um, in its formal structure. It's you know, it's much more of a written film. Um, obviously, John Sayles is a writer. Um, you know, he's, he's yeah, it's, started it's out visually very plain. Like it's it's pretty. It's it's shot by Haskell Wexler, who is a competent cinematographer. But there's nothing particularly memorable about any of its images or or construction visually. Uh, yeah. Um, so my question to you is: um, Does this movie? Get you excited, like you know, Strike gets you excited because of its, uh, its, its uh, the risks it takes formally, you know, and, and with its um, montage and, and all these, you know, interesting kind of backwards camera stuff, and you know, as a as a piece of film, it's it's really invigorating. Um, Mate One is more of a, you know, a narrative and and um, it's know, much more it's kind much, of it's much more conventional. Yeah, but does but is there is there something for you to get excited about about this film? Do you do you find this uh, engaging at all? Uh, it's 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 okay. It's 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 good. I find it a hard movie to criticize because because I think it means well, uh, and I don't like to be mean to movies that I think uh, have their heart in the right place. But <laughs> uh, I I I didn't really care for it as much as as strike I, I preferred strike and I mm-hmm. uh, as as we were talking about with with strike I, I really like this idea and uh, like as Einstein said when you're when you're you're making a pro-collectivist film you have to have a collectivist hero and Meituan does not do that it has it has recognizable actors uh, playing audience identification heroes it has uh, Chris Cooper as the the union man who is uh, totally good and james earl jones as the uh the 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 voice of the negro worker who is also totally good and there's david strathairn as the embodiment of law who is totally good and then you have kevin ty as the bad guy who is totally evil and yes it's 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 so black and white and it so stacks the deck and strike stacks the deck too but it's just it's it's just much more boring to me, and uh, I'm more more than that. I'm I'm interested in in the the fact that that the, of where the film ends up as opposed to where it starts. Like like this is not a movie about work. You think it might be. You th- uh, the early scenes seem to be a movie about union organizing, about like the theory of of how a union works. Like I, I really like these early scenes where Cooper is trying to convince the, uh, the, um, uh, the Scotch Irish miners that they need to let the Italians join the union. They need to let the, the, the black people join the union that you can't have a union of just white Americans. That's not what a union is about. It needs to be open for everyone. And it's especially interesting in the, in the context of how unions actually work throughout the 20th century, in which they were, were often really, really racist. So, you know, that, that is an interesting topic, which sales doesn't address as the film goes on. It becomes a much more conventional narrative about a, a good guy taking on bad guys. 
uh, to the point that when it ends, it, it, it doesn't even seem like a union movie at all anymore. Like it, it, it comes to this conclusion that is essentially the gunfight at the OK Corral. And the Chris Cooper character, rather than being a union man, a, a collectivist hero, is, is just another uh, Christ figure. And I'm, I'm, it, I am disappointed in that. <laughs> um, I, I see, I understand your criticisms. I actually like this movie a lot more than, than you did. Um, but for diff- I liked it for reasons other than, than um, that. Like, I think there's a lot that this movie, and it does, I, I will admit that it does try a, a lot of things and it doesn't succeed in every facet, I think, um, I do think while there are recognizable characters here, um, I think John Sayles is trying to do something and it's not the collectivist idea that you get with strike, but he's trying to give credence to a lot of characters. I think in this movie, like he will follow a certain character for a little bit. Um, and I, I feel like, yes, Chris Cooper is the main guy and the movie culminates in in his story um or what happens to him should i say but i feel like and i it doesn't get become fully realized because certain characters like james earl jones's character um disappears for long stretches of the movie which is he's totally absent from the ending we have no idea what happened to him it's it's kind of sloppy in that um but i still kind of respect it for trying um and i and i think he's He's working with, um, I think, trying to give everybody a little, a little bit of something is what I'm saying. Well, I think, I think, I think if that if that character is played by an actor with less with less presence with less right, I mean, you know, weight yeah, on yeah. on you know, for lack of a better word, on on screen than James Earl Jones, I think I think that whole subplot would just feel like tokenism. But because it's James Earl Jones and he's such a powerful screen presence, it it almost feels like an integral part of the film. Well, I, you know what I feel? I feel, I feel like there was more to it that was cut is what my thinking is. I think that there, there were probably a lot, some of these characters were, were initially fleshed out a little bit more. Um, because like I said, those, those threads kind of just disappear. And I, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I, once again, I, I can't know for sure what was, you know, but it feels like tantalizing things are left un, unsaid. Um, but I do, um, beyond that, there are other things about this movie that I do really like. Um, I, I actually really got caught up in the drama of it. Um, when the, um, there's kind of, we find out that a character is villainous. Um, that is not, it's, it's, it's not, known in the beginning um but there's right. a rat there's but a, if, you know, if you've seen shawshank redemption you know which character it is well <laughs> that being said regardless <laughs> um that was just my setup was that um i it, it got really tense for me actually um as there's kind of a hit put out on Chris Cooper because they, they kind of slander him and, and make up lies about him as that he's the traitor. Um, and the union guys are um, trying to, you know, plant, they, you know, they pull straws to have one of them take him out. And it's juxtaposed with this scene, which um, with Will Oldham 
trying to let the um, the guys in the union know that it's it's false. I'm I'm setting this up really poorly, but um, anyway, it yeah, he's it he's he's like- he's telling a variation of a Bible story in code so that the union guys will know that that Chris Cooper has been set up, which Will Oldham has discovered, but he's been unable to tell his friends because because he's being strong armed by uh, Kevin the, Todd, the real the big yeah. Who's by the way. He always plays as a villain, and I mentioned that in my letterbox review. But there's something about that that I just—it's really fun. I mean, he's—he's he's just so evil. It's funny. But anyway, that section um, I found actually kind of thrilling, and it actually reminded me a little bit of um, some of the scenes, like in *Inglorious Bastards*, where it's kind of ratcheting up um, this tension, um, and that's kind of diffused at the last minute or whatever. Um, so I thought, I thought in those terms it worked well and sure that's a conventional way of going about things. And if you're comparing it to strike, it's not as necessarily as exciting. Um, but I got wrapped up in the narrative of this and, um, see, I, I, I really didn't like that sequence at all. I thought, I thought that Kevin Ty and the other bad guy, uh, who were like drunk in church and just laughing hysterically, uh, were really overplaying that scene and as was Will Oldham and, and his, version of the parable ends with with joseph uh being killed <laughs> and and all i'm thinking which has got to be what everyone else in the audience of this church was thinking is if joseph dies in the story then what happens to all of the rest of the jews like, there's no more <laughs> lineage if joseph gets killed when he's in slavery then you know there's no jesus well, but the- and maybe you know that's like a, a practical concern that that I would come up with because I wasn't as involved in like sure. the suspense narrative as as you know the movie would want me to be because there's no suspense there because you know that Chris Cooper can't be killed at that point. <laughs> See, I didn't. You know, I, I I bought it. I you know I'll come out and say it. I you know I. I thought there was a, a genuine chance that it could have he could have been taken out there. And you know, to be fair, to to you know, I probably would have liked it more if he had been killed at that point. You know, that would have made it more interesting. Um, it, it it would have like if 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 instead of like the the kind of you know over the top uh, preaching sequence, if it was instead like a suspenseful race with. Uh, James Earl Jones and and Chris Cooper and the guy who knows that the the uh, the uh, the spy is a spy the agent provocateur uh, is a bad guy is he's like uh, he's been wounded and he's like been cared for by by hillbillies and he's like you know desperately <laughs> trying to make it back to the camp so he can tell them what's really going on you know there there would be like more human drama there to me than in the the will them preaching sequence. Right. Well, you know, and that, and that guy, by the way, is uh, is Courtney Cox's dad on Cougar Town, which who is Will Oldham? No, the uh, the the guy who witnesses the other guy, the wounded guy. Oh, oh. Well, I'm glad you made a Cougar Town reference. Uh, <laughs> Abed Nadir would be proud of it's you. It's the I, first I, Cougar I Town reference in the history of the George Sanders show. <laughs> And and hopefully the last. Um, so I I I know what you're saying, and and this movie is very 
um, strident. And, you know, like I said, Stales is um, very um, blunt, blunt. He is very blunt, but but he's, I, but I, he's honest. And, and, he and I think that that goes a long way. And it, and it endears itself to me um, because I don't really see people with voices that are this honest that often you know what i mean like i I don't mind the bluntness of the message so much although i i kind of have a problem with that as uh with the bluntness of the execution okay i mean that's that's fair i mean there you know um have you seen any other sales films uh i've seen a few i haven't seen i haven't seen all i've seen city of hope i've seen lone star um those are the only ones i can think of he has a tendency I mean, I'm not, I'm not well-versed in him either. So, you know, I'm not, I don't want to put this box around him necessarily, but, um, Oh, know, eight, eight men some, out is, is a movie that I, I really love. Well, that's the way I was going to bring up is in the eight men out, which is a movie I really enjoy too. Um, that, that came out the year after mate one. Um, mm-hmm. and I really, really enjoy that movie, but he still has this tendency, you know, there are the scenes with John Cusack where he's playing catch with the little boys in the street. Oh, sure. That, you know, is just treacle. I mean, it's, you know, it's really, you know, and, and you kind of roll your eyes at it, but, but you know that sales means it. And for some reason that kind of transcends the hokiness at times. Right. um, And and that, uh, and that's fine. Cause I, I think he is very genuine and it's why I, I don't, dislike this movie i just I, I just wish it was better and I understand. there 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 is something something interesting about the film and i i think it's it's not about what what i thought it was going to be about in the beginning like like i said in, in the beginning it, it seems to be about the union but by the end of the film i'm i'm convinced that it's not about unions at all it's about it's about something else and uh, the reason for that is is the way the film ends, and so I, I kind of want to get into like spoiler territory here, so which we don't do on the show, but I don't I don't know if people have seen this film or if it matters, but whatever. Uh, spoil it, Sean. <laughs> spoil it. Uh, it it ends with the with the shootout. It's it's exactly like the gunfight at the OK Corral, like the bad guys and the good guys, and they walk down the street at like high noon or whatever, and and David's just there and starts shooting, and. The reason he starts shooting is because Chris Cooper, who through the entire film, while he's been union organizing, what he's mainly been arguing is against violence, is against the miners taking up arms against uh, management, uh, against the management's goons and and doing a nonviolent strike. Right. And he, he's, he's telling them to you know not stoop to their level, you know. Um, right. Yeah. And and the thing that kicks off the uh, the gunfight is that Chris Cooper has learned that there's going to be this standoff in town, and so he's like he's got to go and stop them from shooting each other. So he runs into the you know the he like pops into view when there's like this big standoff, screaming, and of course the people who are like ready to shoot each other take this as a sign that they're being attacked and so everyone starts shooting each other and chris cooper ends up getting killed in the in the crossfire so it's like you know tragic irony with a capital t and a capital i it's like the guy who tried to stop violence ended up causing the violence because he did this incredibly stupid thing which is you don't (laughs) you know pop out of nowhere screaming at people who are about to shoot each other right (laughs) So, so, so you think that the whole movie was leading to 
the revelation that uh, the main character was an idiot? No, I think the whole movie, <laughs> I think uh, what, it, what it does is it recontextualizes the movie as not being about unions versus management. And it's not being about life of a coal miner. It's about violence versus nonviolence. And, and this end of the character as this, this tragically ironic end uh, is about his failure to stop violence. And then we have this narrator. And the narrator has been like in and out of the film. And, and it's, it's Will Oldham as an old man looking back on this time. Like my letterbox review would call it How, how Red Was My Valley, which uh, is, is very similar to, to How Green Was My Valley. Sure. Um, and... Uh, at the end of the film, he kind of tells what happens after the gunfight, which is a bunch more violence. Like, right. uh, uh, you know, David Strathairn uh, goes on, and then uh, the the turncoat uh, one day just shows up and shoots him. And that's the end of the film. So, you know, we see that the this film has not been about unionism. It's been about nonviolence. And the when the nonviolence fails, it just ends to, leads to more and more violence. Which is which is interesting, but it's not really what I expected, and it's not it's not as interesting as the you know the fight for workers' rights. I think because uh, sales paints it so black and white, like there you know there is no question that nonviolence is the way to go. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no ambiguity there. And I, I compared it to a, to a movie like uh, uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, which was the, the Palme d'Or winner from like 2006. It's uh, Ken Loach's film about the, the Irish Civil War. And it's a movie that I love more than anyone else, apparently. Uh, it's That's my not va- true. I think I, that movie's got a lot of love going on. I don't know. It's, it's, it's my favorite film from that year, and it's one of my favorite films of the decade. I never see it pop up on, on lists like that. But that's a film that takes both sides of, of this issue, of this conflict in, in leftist politics. Like, like you know, do we, do we you know, react with, with violence to oppression, or do we go the nonviolent route? And it takes that conflict seriously on both sides and shows like the very real dilemmas and, and contradictions that come about in, in you know in, in you know trying to to move society in a progressive direction, and Meitwan doesn't really do that. Sure, uh, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I I think the di- I think the difference in our reactions to these movie to this movie is that. Um, I think I go, going in, I was like, this is going to be a John Sayles film. And so I kind of expected like um, it to be kind of black and white. And, and I, I was kind of rolling with that a little bit more. And I think I wasn't, I wasn't going here looking for nuance. I wasn't going in here looking for um, sales, like battling, uh, you know, I, 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 I wasn't either, but, but I mean, that doesn't mean I didn't want to see it. <laughs> Like I, I didn't, I didn't sure, expect but I'm just it that, from But I'm just saying that uh, I'm not disappointed that I didn't get that because I never expected to. So like I, I don't want to ding the movie for what it's not necessarily. Um, because well, what I'm, I think I'm, is on I'm not, the screen here. I, my, my argument is not one of like not meeting my expectations. Like I expected this film to be a great film and it was an okay film. It's, it's. I think it is a flaw with John Sayles as a director and a, and a flaw with the with this film. 
Okay. That it doesn't have that kind of nuance, and he doesn't. You have that. you prefer you prefer your John Sales of like uh, Piranha, right? The like. Uh... <laughs> he was pretty great in Piranha. I really pretty... like I really like John Sales as an actor. I think he's great. I do too. He's a great presence, and he. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, he only well, gets he... the one scene here, and it's it's not all that great. But he's fantastic in Eight Men Out. He... Yeah. Well. Oh yeah, he's great in that, and and yeah, whenever he crops up, you know, he's such a uh, recognizable guy because he's like a you know nine feet tall, yeah, um, and he's got you know that face or whatever, um, and so yeah, when he pops up in something like that, or he's in matinee too for half a second, he's um, like he's like an angry skinny Sam Shepard. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, Sam Shepard isn't fat. Well, Sean, no, that's that's my point. Is is John Sayles is is really skinny. Yeah, he is. He's very skinny. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the performances here? Because this this was Chris Cooper's first film role. Um, really? And he, yeah, I did not crazy? know. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, he, and he, obviously, he's great. He's great. Uh, he's he's Chris Cooper. He's he is. Yeah, he he's fantastic. And James Earl Jones, of, of course, is really great. Uh, I wish that there was more of of David Strathairn. Me too. Absolutely. Uh, that that would be my number one criticism well it'd be my number one criticism for any movie is more davis strathairn because that guy and and his character you know you're talking about black and whiteness his character is actually the only one really who um is kind of gray um you know he starts out questioning chris cooper's appearance in town and you don't really know what he's thinking Right, but um, it, but it but it turns out that he is he is just he is the physical embodiment of the law, right? I, with, with no you know moral ins or outs, he's just the law. Yeah, um, and yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but he but he makes a character like you said with James Earl Jones, where James Earl Jones is such a, uh, a presence and such a uh, masterful actor and stuff. Um, he makes it engaging and interesting and anytime he's on screen even if he's just reinforcing those ideals um he does he does a great job at it and i and i um i love that guy <laughs> yeah i liked i liked uh i liked mary mcdonnell uh, i hated the her last scene her second to last scene where she uh, is like doing the laundry and then shoots the bad guy it's such like an action movie scene I really like that scene because that's exactly why I like that scene because it was like so stylized. It's Um, it's the mom with a shotgun. Oh yeah. yeah. But you (laughs) see, I think we just you know I think I was riding, I was rolling with this. I like I think I agree with you on your points, but like that's not the the movie that I cared to see. Like I don't know. I just I I, Mary McDonald shooting Kevin you know with a shotgun is. it's always a good time, you know, sure. blood on the sheets. I mean, you know, it's, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this, know, this, this is, this is, not... this is not a case where, where I didn't like this movie and you did like, we have, yet, know, we yeah, have yet, I we know. have yet to come up with, with that one. This is you're, you're... just a movie that I thought was less good than you did. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to, um, create that argument and I'm not sure. trying, and I'm not trying to say I loved this movie, uh, so much. To, to make this disparity between us. Like I, I had a rocking good time with this, um, but it's not going to change anybody's <laughs> mind about anything. You know, it's not, 
you know, I, 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 think, I wonder, I think I wonder how just... many of the reviews of Meituan contain the line, I had a rockin' good time with this. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You got your coal pun in there. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, let me ask you this question. Uh, was your copy four by three? No, I don't think okay. so. Okay. Uh, cause I got mine from another video store and, um, this thing is really hard to find. Like this movie's out of print on DVD, yeah. um, as far as I can tell. And the DVD I got was from like 1990 or something Yikes. or, you know, however long ago. So it was, unfortunately, I didn't get to see all of the, um, you know, the film, huh. <laughs> which is the second time that's happened this year. It happened with, uh, a previous film, which I'll mention a little bit later in the show. But, um, <laughs> I just gave away my, uh my uh rep pick but that's okay no yeah um, it's it's 185 oh that's that's great um because yeah. i looked afterwards online and there was a there were like two links to it on amazon and the first one was the one that i had which is four by three and then there was one that said rare you know 185 version um and then all the reviews were like someone's totally lying this is still you know uh edited for television or whatever so anyway long Weird. story short i'm pretty much pretty sure the one i saw was 185 so. all right that's fine. I mean, you would have noticed right away because, you know, you were just ranting about The Simpsons. So um, anyway, so, yeah, that, you know, uh, that's our discussion of Mate One. Um, it was a rockin' good time. Uh, we're going to listen to a little more Aesop Rock here. Um, this is a nine to five, nine to fivers anthem. Year of the silkworm, everything I built burned yesterday. Let's display the purpose that these still serve. Elevate the spreading of the silk germ. Trying to weave a web and all I believe in is dead. Brother, it's the year of the jackal. Saddle up on high horse. My torch forced Polaris embarrassed. Jackal up the hassle by the doom and legend marriage. I bought some new sneakers. I just hope my legacy matches. It's the year of the land shark. Cry a sand parched dam. Get these men some water. They're out there being slaughtered in meaningless wars. So you don't have to bother and can sit and soak the idiot. Circling the torches on your porches Trying to guard the fortress of a king they've never seen or met But all are trained to murder at the first sign of a threat Maybe it's the year of the water bug Cockroach, shutter, thug specimen They respawn from dreaming of your next akin I'm still dealing with this mess I'm in I've been the object of your ridicule You've been a bitch, lieutenant God, it's the year of the underpaid employee Spitting 40 plus a week and trying to rape Earth in my off time You poor dizzy, I can't keep myself busy enough So you can run, run, run And I'ma let you think you we the American working population hate the fact that eight hours a day is wasted on chasing the dream of someone that isn't us. And we may not hate our jobs, but we hate jobs in general that don't have to do with fighting our own causes. We the American working population hate the nine to five day in day out. But we'd rather be supporting ourselves by being paid to perfect the pastimes that we have harbored based solely on the fact that it makes us smile if it sounds dope. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, while the rest of you are enjoying your Labor Day off, Labor Day day off, I'm going to be doing some work to try and get the show edited so it'll actually get out to you on on Labor Day uh, and not be, uh, you know, temporarily inappropriate. Well, if that's the case, we're just going to sit on it and release it next year at this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would like to say, I would like to, you know, in honor of Labor Day, I would like to um, 
commend you and thank you for all the hard work you put into this show. Um, as most people probably know, uh, I don't do anything. You know, mm. you you you're in charge of editing the show, putting all the clips in. Um, you know, doing the the Twitter stuff that I can't understand, um, you know, making the presence known. And so I appreciate it. And, you know, I I, want to thank you uh, for putting in the work because if I was in charge, this would never get done. So um, I I thank you for that, Sean. Sure. (laughs) Uh, I ain't ain't paying you if you're looking for a paycheck. No, no, of course not. This is the, you know, I'm the corporate fat cat that's patting you on the back for a job well done, but it's not going to give you vacation time. Um, if you are in San Francisco, uh, coming up very soon, I hope you get this posted, Sean, uh, on Labor Day, because on Friday, September 5th, um, the Castro Theater clearly uh, has started listening to the George Sanders show because they are doing a George Sanders show double feature of uh, Starman and Under the Skin, uh, nice. which is a show we talked about um you know, three or four episodes back. Um, and Wasn't just it go- like in March or something? Was it? I don't it know. A, it was a while ago. Was it? Okay. I well, it was... Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I what I suggest you do is you, you take yourself down to the Castro Theater, right? You got your little iPod with you. And in one ear, uh, while the movies are playing, you listen to us talking about them. Because uh, they sync up perfectly. I, I didn't know right. if you knew that about the show. Is that part of the work that Sean puts in each week is making sure that the discussions will run as long as the films that we're talking about. Because each episode gets <laughs> fucking longer on this stupid show. Uh, and it syncs up perfectly. So um, just let that be known. Like when we were just talking about Mary McDonald shooting uh, in the laundry. That happens right at the same spot in the movie. Uh, yeah. So try that on for size. All right. If you're on the other side of the continent, you should be at the Toronto Film Festival, which starts next weekend. And uh, uh, the film festival, in addition to playing a whole bunch of uh, of new movies, also plays some old movies. And one of the old movies they're playing on September 10th, which uh, happens to be my daughter's birthday, is uh, King Who's Dragon Gate Inn from 1968. It is one of the single best action movies ever made. Uh, you owe it to yourself to go see it. It's playing at 12.45 in the afternoon at the Bell Lightbox Theater as part of the Toronto International Film Festival. Go and see if you it. see, it's, you a, see it's, a, it's a brand new restoration. It's, uh, I bet it looks fantastic. Uh, and if you see ghosts on your way to like the bathroom or something in between showings, just let it go. Uh, those <laughs> ghosts are always there. Um you can find more about us online at the George Sanders show.blogspot.com. Uh, we're on the Twitter um, at Geo Sanders show, and uh, you can email us at the George Sanders show at gmail.com. Uh, next time on the show, which is actually going to come out uh, sooner than you think, um, we're going to do our annual uh, top 10 sight and soundish kind of poll uh, for 2014. Um, so we're compiling the stuff right now. We've actually received, uh, some top 10 lists, uh, which is great. So if you have any films you don't want to highlight, maybe we'll talk about them, uh, or run them down on the show or something like that. Um, so it's going to be a special episode. Um, should be a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed it last year and, uh, I just, I just got to sit down and make my list. Have you made your list yet? I, I made an early version of it. It's still uh, pending revision, but I have like the basic, uh, the basic idea in place. 
Cool. Yeah. Um, how many Johnny Toe movies are on that list? Uh, none right now. Which oh my god! I'm, I'm wondering if if uh, if it's time to put a, a Johnny Toe on there because I haven't yet. Uh, we've got. We've got two years of top ten lists that we're working with. And the idea is we'll have ten years of top tens, and we'll have a top one hundred at the same time as the Sight and Sound next Sight and Sound poll comes out in twenty twenty two. And I, of the twenty films that I've listed so far, there's no Johnny Toe. I don't think there's there's only one Hong Kong movie. So I think it's just Chunking Express. So yeah, I don't know if it, if, if if it's time for Johnny Toe or not. He may have to wait until the twenty fifteen list. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, we've also got some more, some some cool, interesting shows uh, that we're lining up um, for the rest of the year. Um, you know, we're going to do the stuff we did last year with our, you know, 1984 episode. Um, we're going to do that this year, like we did 1933 last year. We'll do our end of the year show, all that stuff's coming. We're going to do a Bob Dylan show. Um, and we're also, we've been talking about, you know, um, I enjoy doing our um George Sanders show book club. And, um, I think what we would like to do is try and do that twice a year. Um, you know, maybe once in January and once in July, um, and kind of give people a heads up if you want to, you know, participate, play along with us or whatever. Um, so if you have any suggestions for a book that you think is like a, a great piece of film criticism or film history or something that you think is, uh, overlooked or something that we should check out, uh, suggest it, you know, on the Twitter or in the email or something like that, because uh, we're kind of casting about right now for our next book that we're going to discuss on the show, um, which won't be till January. But, you know, uh, Sean and I can barely read. So it takes a little while for us to <laughs> you have your daughter read your books to you, right? You're I mean, she's going to be she's going to be a, a big girl soon. Her birthday's coming next week. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't wait until I, I start reading her. The American cinema is a bedtime story. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that's child endangerment right there, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it first. On, um, so anyway, without further ado, thanks for listening. Um, it's always fun. Um, and here's George. It's been a while since we heard George, right? Uh, yeah, probably. So, yeah, take it away. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate That no one 
It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome 